Welcome to the Beyond Mining podcast series. This podcast series was recorded from a number of talks, panel discussions and workshops held between the 22nd and 29th of November 2020 at the Beyond Mining Counter Conference. This counter conference was organised by Blockade iMark. Blockade iMark is made up of an alliance of organisations that has been protesting the International Mining and Resources Conference held annually in so-called Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri and Boomerang country. You can find out more information about Blockade iMark and the Beyond Mining podcast series at blockadeimark.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your podcast. Podcast 4 Rio Tinto's Pangua Mine and the History of Resistance in Bougainville. Here's one of the Beyond Mining Counter Conference organisers, Kim giving some context and history into Bougainville and its people's struggle against colonialism and extractivism before we hear from newly appointed Bougainvillean parliamentarian Theoniela Matbob. So a little bit of a background um, quickly before we dive into speakers. Um, Bougainville is uh, a place that was initially part of the Solomon Islands. Um, Nikamui is one of the traditional names for it. and it, a French colonizer named it after himself, Bougainville, and it was occupied um, by the Germans and the British for a while. And then Australia was actually the colonial administration for a while. Um, Japan grabbed it during World War II and then Australia again until 1975 when it became part of Papua New Guinea, um, when Papua New Guinea was um, granted independence. Um, but Australia was quite active in um, opening one of the world's largest copper and gold mines, um, the Panguna mine, as you can see marked on the map there. Um, And it operated um, from 1972 to 1989 and generated almost $2 billion in revenue for an Australian um, subsidiary of Rio Tinto and its subsidiary, um, Bogan Copper, at Bougainville Copper Limited and the Papua New Guinean government. But for those whose land it was, the traditional uh, landowners in the Panguna area in Bougainville, they saw less than 1% of the profits and the legacy that this mine left behind was um, environmental degradation, pollution of the rhythm systems and destruction of the the arable land in the area. It also actually um, started a, a violent civil war, um, an uprising by local people, um, starting with sabotage and then uh, guerrilla warfare um, against, um, sorry, well, I am speeding ahead of the slides, <laughs> um, uh, against the environmental degradation and the unfair distribution of profits um, meant that there was a civil war from um, 1989 to 1997 and 15,000 to 20,000 people died in this conflict, which is about 10% of the population. That wasn't just from the conflict itself, um, but it was also because um, the Papua New Guinean Defence Force um, 
established a sea blockade to actually uh, isolate the island and stop any access. So in an attempt to turn people against um, the revolutionaries who were fighting for their land. We're actually screening a film this evening called The Coconut Revolution, which goes into a bit of that background. So join us for that. Um, but yeah, the environmental destruction there was intense. Um, the development of the pit alone requested required blasting away half a mountainside um, and clearing about 220 hectares of tropical rainforest um, and spraying the undergrowth with Agent Orange. Um, and the Java and Karawong rivers were very, very um, affected with, with copper and tailings leaching and, and things like that as well. Um, so there was a peace agreement established in 2001 um, and that gave birth to the autonomous Bougainville government. Um, but Bougainville is still currently fighting for full independence for, from Papua New Guinea at the moment. Um, and 98.34% uh, of eligible voters this year voted in a referendum um, vying for full independence for Bougainville. So that's what's happening over there at the moment. Um, in terms of Australia's involvement, the Australian Army actually backed the PNG Defence Force in the Civil War as well. And um, so that's that's their part in accountability there. Um, and in 2013-14, um, a bit of the environmental impact was assessed, um, the impact of the mine Rio Tinto um, and Bougainville Copper Limited actually exited the area during the conflict, um, which meant whether they had any intention to remediate the area or not is, is up in the air and a lot of people say um, it was quite negligent, but um, they had to exit the area, which means any remediation of the environmental damage of the area um, had to be delayed. In 2013-14, there started being discussions within Rio Tinto about um, reopening the mine. Um, so in those discussions, they did actually recognize the environmental damage and the traditional landowners at the time said, we're not having this discussion until we can remediate the environmental damage. Like we're not talking about reopening it until we can actually address these things. Um, at which point Rio Tinto divested completely and sold Bougainville Copper Limited to the Papua New Guinean government and the autonomous Bougainville government. Um, so that was where they cut and run. Recently this year, um, an exciting development's happened. Um, the Human Rights Law Centre released a really comprehensive report in April this year of, of the impacts on various communities in the Panguna area. Um, and in November this year, the Australian government agreed to mediate talks between Rio Tinto and these Bougainvillean residents about these environmental impacts. Um, so as you can see, all these little houses along here represent the areas the interviews were done um, by the community and by the Human Rights Law Centre. So it's a really comprehensive report, which we will share at the end of this. I highly recommend you reading it to really absorb what is going on there and what's been experienced by communities on the ground um, as part of these ongoing legacy issues um, that are of environmental, um, environmental human rights um, importance. So with that little bit of background, I'm gonna share an interview with our first speaker. Um, our first speaker is Theonilla Roka-Matbog. Um, she's a traditional landowner from the Makosi village. Um, and she is one of the 156 local residents that are submitting the complaint through the Human Rights Law Centre to the Australian government. 
She's also a young parliamentarian as part of the autonomous Bougainville government um, for the constituency of Iowa. Um, and she's a teacher by profession and a mother of two. Um, and I will leave the rest to her. I'll just share my screen now and play you the video. All right, well, um, first of all, what motivates you to speak on behalf of your community, both in the Human Rights Law Centre report and also in government? What is it that you want to achieve for them? Um, actually, uh, I should say that the motivation that I have really to be the voice of the voiceless, I should say, back in my community is given, you know, there's, we have so many issues where people do not have that confidence in themselves to speak out for themselves, to represent themselves simply because of, and I, I, I can, I can honestly, from my own assessment, this is what I see. People have never, I mean, especially when it comes to the issue of development from within my, I mean, the area that I come from, people were, the first thing that they were introduced into was the issue of extractivism. And this is the thing that, you know, they're, they're, they've always been at the receiving end and they do not have the confidence to speak for themselves because they were trained to just accept whatever that comes to them. Mm -hmm. So that this is the real motivation that I've had and having grown up to see how, you know, behind, behind the authority, you see people are complaining, but when it comes in front, you know, when it's time to face the government, when it's time to face the developer, developers of certain industries, people do not have the confidence. So that's really where the motivation lied for me. Good on you. That's, that's really amazing. Good on you. Well, um, I wanted to dive into talking about legacy issues and the report. Um, one of the biggest issues, obviously, is the polluted river systems and the lack of access to clean water and in all the different areas that um, there were interviews about lack of access to clean water. Um, access varied depending where people had been re relocated to. Can you speak a bit to that um, more broadly? Well, um, uh, with regards to the issues of the legacy issue, I should say that it is much more, I mean, for myself and my engagement that I came into, especially with Human Rights Law Center to participate in the report, I think it's just part of the such a very big un resolved legacy issues that lies behind and it's within the communities. So just to talk about the, I mean, where the, the report is concerned. Yes, um, well, these are issues that, you know, given the company's presence in the community with the people, and then when the, when the company just walked out because the people people decided to rise up against the company not because because i mean simply because they wanted inclusion they wanted to be included and they never had the voice and then they never had that voice to clearly or openly say give out talk about their grievances especially but 
I mean, apart from that, whatever the company left behind is a real concern where now people do not have the basic needs, you know, water, food. And even as we speak today, there is real hunger for food, especially given the continuous impact and the diversion of the sediments that were washed away from what is now the peak. Because initially, that this was where the mountains were, and there were three big mountains there. And then, due to the process of development, people decided to—I mean, the company decided to just dump the tailings into into the river that a lot of people were depending on. Mm. And these are the things that have caused—I mean, that have been with the people when the company was kicked out of Bougainville, people are still living with those things. And this is where for myself, I come in and then I started advocating for justice to take place when I was still in high school. So when I was still in high school, I used to talk about, you know, government should listen to the people. As early as the age of 14, I started talking about it because I've realized that, you know, it's not normal for people to participate in bigger things, especially when it comes to nation building, particularly where we are now. They cannot take part in it when they have physical needs. Their mm. worry is about the food. Their worry is about having access to clean water. And their worry is about having land where they can be able to till and then feed their children. So these were the issues that have been with the people. And finally, you know, it's like to me, the biggest blessing was to have Human Rights Law Center coming to us and then saying, you know, giving us that space after our request to call for Human Rights Law Center, because we were never heard, like from 2014 coming up, we were calling up for the government. I particularly, I even raised my voice publicly to say that you have to listen to the people of Panguna especially. But we were ignored by the government and that was how we were able to come outside of the country to and bringing it to where now it is with the Human Rights Law Center of Australia. Mm, mm. Yeah, and something that I didn't understand until I read that report is how ongoing things are, how new areas of land are being flooded by the tailing stands and people are scared of levees bursting and, and whole new areas flooding. Um, so that's, yeah, that was really shocking. So can you tell us a bit more about, you know, the ongoing impacts and how much land that you're continuing to lose? You know, um, the for the mine itself, I mean, like it, it stretches out all the way into the coastal corridor of of Bougainville, from where the mine is, we, there are different layers of issues that are that are affecting people today. So I'd like to just briefly give you a, a glimpse of what it's really like. Mm. Like you know, around uh, where the where the cone of the the mine is, where the pit is, these people are actually suffering. They are faced with the issue of chemicals in the tailing 
And then people are living literally, they're building homes and that's where their home is. Mm -hmm. They're living on this and then you have this pollution that's being breathed in by the people every single day, even by the kids, by youth, and then health issues given all this, all this surrounding that they're living in the polluted surrounding, the polluted um, tailings. This is what the people, and they have issues of cough and respiratory issues and even even other health complications you know i mean if i can be a social i mean if i can be a health worker then i can detail it but it's specifically every single day struggle for the people is living on the polluted polluted tailing because that's not the real land that they are on coming down to the 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 next area which is called the upper tailing under the bcl um mapping social mapping this area we have now that's where i am from we are faced and challenged very much by the instability of the land you know it's very hard for us now to work work the land plant crops because every single day or every single season especially when it's wet season we are expecting landslides of the landslides and then rivers being blocked our access to water being blocked so these are the real challenges that we are faced with going further down is where the levees were built by the company and today as we speak they're collapsing they're collapsing as especially when the river the polluted river is pushing to go back to its original course it's now contributing to dismantling, dismantling this um, tailing, the land and the levees as well, being collapsed like every single month we're experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And also craters being formed. And with the washing away of the land from the, the area number three that I'm talking about, these levees, when, as they collapse and the sand continues to be pushed down towards the coast, new arable land areas are being covered now mm -hmm. so these are the complexities of the issues that we have and it does not only affect my community it does not affect the area that i represent as a as a political representative but it's now covering over it's it's affecting five constituencies mm -hmm. that's my constituency another constituency that's called bolave Lato, Torokina, Baba, these are the, all the constituencies that are now living the aftermath and the continuous impact of what Bougainville Copa Limited left behind. Yeah, yeah. And uh, during the crisis, during the um, PNG Defence Force blockade, um, I heard a lot of um, the ways that Bougainvillians coped with that isolation was um, going back to traditional ways and li living with the land and then innovating, doing these um, ingenious things with building on the knowledge with the land. And, um, and yeah, they were running vehicles off coconut oil and doing hydropower to um, light up the villages and using traditional medicines and coconut oil, coconut oil for medicine, um, which is all really brilliant. But, as arable land, like you say, 
gets compromised, is, is that harder to do, to, to sort of um, innovate and use traditional knowledge when more and more land is being polluted? For me, I can say that I am very much confident that we can be able to use traditional math, I mean measures to be able to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the land, but it only needs a bit of push, you know, like a bit of push or a relief from from the people, from the company responsible. Mm -hmm. Because for myself, you know, I mean, there's these, I mean, it's it's common sense for me to say that if I am if I am to create rubbish, I cannot allow another person to clean up my rubbish. Mm -hmm. So under that understanding, like we have, we actually are working very closely with people in the communities who comes up, you know, they're proposing different ideas on how we can be able to use up the tailing and then be able to reclaim the land and then we be able to reforest it so that those chemicals can be absorbed through the natural natural process that we will be able to be working on which i believe and that we together with my community we have continuously talking about it lately but the part that i would call on the developers to come back is to if you know if you're not going to be a, i mean it's not like we expect everyone to make us happy but at least in a sense where you support us with a brick making machine you just small things and then we can be able to use up because for myself whatever is left now that tailing is actually needed it's needed back by Bougainville. We have swampy land areas that we can be able to backfill and then be able to transform them into agricultural land. So these are the different different avenues or different areas that we need the tailings to be used for. Mm. But it's just that we need to come on a round table with the developer so we know that, I mean, at the end of the day, their company is made up of people like myself. We can be able to talk. We can be able to find and then be able to understand each other. And the, the thing that I can, I can demand as a representative of my people and also a human rights activist is we have to come to a mutual understanding and respect, first of all. Because, you know, we can agree on one thing, but when a company is their own agenda it's it will always be a divisive agenda mm. Mm. yeah yeah absolutely and um can you tell us a bit about i i know there are people in certain areas um who are gold panning in the toxic water because at this point because of um toxins spreading to arable land and things it is their only option so Bougainville was renowned for really fertile soil in lots of areas, um, but more and more people aren't able to to grow crops with like watermelons and coconut and cacao and all this stuff that um, they were doing perhaps before. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety in these communities because they know doing the gold panning and stuff that they are getting sick and getting diseases and pregnancy complications. And yeah, can you speak to that? um that fear and anxiety and the fact that the community knows that they're getting sick but they 
can't do anything about it because their options have been taken away? Well, very much. Um, I should say that if you happen to just come across a woman and you ask her, why is it that you seem to be panning every day? And this is what she'll tell you. Do I have any other choice? Do I have any other option that I can, you know, go to, I mean, be able to make hands meet for my family? What people are doing and what the development has done to the to, to my people is really, we've been placed in a position we don't have choice. We really don't have much choice because as we speak, you know, the chemicals are leaching into the arable land areas and it's lowering, make, and, the, and the land now becomes, I mean, it's not enough for, I mean, it's not fertile enough mm. to produce and then make help families make ends meet from selling other other products like through farming, taro, and all the other activities. So that's the the shortest, I mean the the most easiest they see, although it's the most dangerous and not health friendly, is panning gold. They know. And then this is what they'll tell you every day. We know our life is short. But do we have any other choice? And these are the things that have, you know, given all these, they've come to a point that they just give in simply because they have to do it to make sure that they make a bit of money to put food on the table for their children. And this is a vicious cycle that has already been developed. Kids grow up, they're not seeing importance in education because they're, the other privileges that I have, have been taken away. So we, we Bougainville, specifically the constituency that I come from, we are given, we are put in this position that we really don't have any choice. Yeah. 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 And um, also the flooding and, and um, the toxins spreading into new areas is losing more cultural and sacred sites and that there were a lot of it lost obviously with the pit and with the original mine um, but reading the report um, a lot of elders grieving for areas that were still there that have since been flooded um, could you speak a bit about um, Bougainville's relationship to land in a cultural sense like there was some really um, beautiful quotes in the in the report from people talking about land is your physical life and sustenance but also your social life and security and politics and spirituality so yeah yeah well land land to to just i mean this is the way i i put it because you know like having i mean our cultural our spiritual relationship with the land is just like when you look at a human person when you look at a human person that person has flesh and that person has blood. So when you look at land, land is land and water. I will have to go a little bit further. Land and water, I mean, they're all like in a, in a human form. You're talking about blood, uh, you're talking about flesh and blood. So that's a, that's a relationship that we have 
we are inseparable. And that's like, you know, like it's like you if in the in the in the sense of mining. When we're talking about mining the land, for myself as a woman who's directly connected to the land, I would say that it's just like you telling me to cut my own skin, remove my flesh, and get my child to heat. So that's how how intact land is to the people. And when that happens, and then, you know, our connection, I mean, before Christianity came into Bougainville, we connect to God through the sacred sites. We connect to God through, through that, through that, fish or the snake or whatever other other creature that lives in that particular area of land mm. and when we go for hunting we go and talk when we're going to fishing we do a bit of sacrifice like how it's done in the bible times like in the whole testament i see moses offering sacrifice we have that in our culture we have that in our system of life so, you know, when, when through the extractive industrial development that took place in Bougainville, it actually denied Bougainvillians our, us, our connection to God through those sacred sites. Mm -hmm. So having done that is, is another way of cutting the connection between you know, like when a child is born and then you have the umbilical cord that connects you to, it's like our connection to God is completely cut off. Mm -hmm. And this is where for us, this is where when we, our connection to the sacred sites, because those sacred sites do are not for one, it does not, it's not there to do one thing or meet our need in one area only. It's there for initiation, there are certain sacred sites that are that are there to connect people to the land, to their God, to be able to get food or uh, protein or any other aquatic life. You know, these are different, different areas, I mean, different types of um, the sacred sites that we have. So given that when people were detached from that through the development, it's like, we have no connection to God through the land. We've lost the land, we've lost everything, we've lost our strength, even our intellect is connected to the land. So that's, the, that's where for us as Bougainvilleans we see when there is uncontrolled social disorder in the community, we blame it to that because there is if there is that connection, we can be able to put this spiritual sense of control and development mm -hmm. for every single child that is born into a family, into a clan, and into a society. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the role of women um, traditionally um, it, the Melanesian matrilineal society, like women were the custodians and of the land and the and the protectors and the owners of the land so how important now are women's voices in decision making about extractive industries um because they are the traditional custodians of the land. well um let me let, let me say that i mean 
for Bougainville, specifically for the politics that is now happening in Bougainville, we say one thing and we're doing another thing. And that's where the problem lies. Mm. You know, we, we're politically telling everyone the women own the land. They're the ones who will come up with the decision. That is, and, and that is Bougainville politics. But today we talk about Bougainville politics, but we're doing another politics, which is foreign to Bougainville. Women are never given that space. Mm. Like in my case, although I am a woman who owned the land, I am still challenged. I am criticized. So this is the problem that we've developed it ourselves, but I believe that if it was never for the presence, because you know, when the company, especially Rio Tinto, when Rio Tinto came into Bougainville, it entertained the men. Mm. And that was where it fed that the men with ego. And now they tend to stand up, I know, stand on women's toes and say, you go to the back. I am the one who's going to deal with the company. That's a problem we have now. And I cannot 100% blame it to the Bougainvillean men, but I will blame it to the way the company came in and it never handled and respected Bougainville, the Melanesian politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, colonialism generally is very patriarchal and I think that's the yeah. sort of thing you know I, I know it's Australia had a big hand in in Rio Tinto coming in it was an Australian company and the Australian colonial administration and we in this country we're still a colonial country we don't have a, a treaty with our first peoples and there is definitely different law um and and land is not being respected in in mm. a way here as well because of those systems so um, yeah yeah, um, sorry, may I just said something else? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and the other thing that I see, of course, like apart from the Australian colonial administration coming to Bougainville is, you know, I've been even very vocal right now in the government that I want all the stakeholders that had a part to play to mm. come out clear because we cannot just blame Australian colonial administration my church, Catholic church, had a role to play as well. Mm. So, you know, this is something that we need to work on together. At the end of the day, we all need to see this together. Australia, we, we will also have to free Australia because if it, there, there were other key players as well, you know, because at the end of the day, we cannot allow to break that relationship that mm. we have with Australia, with the church, because, I mean, you know, the way that I see it with regards to the Bougainville Panguna politics, especially, mm. we keep blaming Australia. We keep blaming Australia for everything. But didn't the church play a role? Didn't the church have a role, had a hand to play? So this is all a agenda that, you know, it needs us to sit together and then be able to iron out, be able to iron out so that the world we'll see justice and justice in its fullness. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we cannot just say, force Australia to accept that I was 100% wrong. There are other stakeholders who had a part to play in that. Mm -hmm. And they all need to reconcile on all these things. It's not about us putting burden on each other, but it's about making sure that we feel that peace, 
And when we feel that peace, we need to accept each other as people in the global community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautifully said. And you're, you're a mother of two and a teacher as well. So what kind of environment do you dream of for your children if, if you can get some justice and, and clean up and remediation and things like that? You know, I mean, I being a mother, being a teacher of so many children, <laughs> you know, I the biggest desire that I'd like to have, and in my lifetime, especially when I'm alive, I'd like to see my children seeing that that environment that they've, they've been living in, that we made them come into this world on, is not a real environment. I want them to be able to to at least through the rehabilitation process, let's be able to bring real life back to these children so that they can find their attachment to the land. Mm -hmm. They can be able to find their connection back to the environment, back to the forest. You know, we I I for myself, being a mother, being a teacher being an activist and now being a political representative, I want to make sure that in my lifetime, things have to change and that we need to allow that Bogan has to open way for justice to find its way back into our global community. Because mm -hmm. for myself, I do not want to die with an incomplete mission that my child will say, my mother wasn't able to do anything for me. Now I keep struggling. I mean, you know, at the first place, my son did not ask to be born. I made up my mind as the mother to bring that child into the world. And having done that, I have the responsibility to ensure that I leave that child, at least be able to contribute to creating a pristine environment. Not that we will make it 100% clean, but at least we bring hope to these children. And apart from that as well, being a mother, I do not want, I want to be a mother who my, ch my child later on would look upon me as a model, who will fight for his justice, who will fight for his liberation, not just politically, but environmentally as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so at the end of the Human Rights Law Centre report, it outlines priority needs that the community has identified, like water monitoring and um, the reinforcement of levees so that they stop breaking down and assistance to clean drinking water. Um, I know that this is an ask of Rio Tinto and of the governments involved and everything, but is there any way that people listening in Australia now, just ordinary people, can help with those direct community needs? Are there any places we can donate to community organisations or something like that? For for myself, um, I would say that, you know, like, apart from us thinking big and all that stuff, I would appreciate if we at the civil society level or as people, people of very, I mean, various different communities, I mean, if you can be able to support, like, at the very least, with uh, don by donating a thing to a community or by fundraising to at least 
help my community to be able to have a brick making machine, a very small one, so that you know these people can be able to do something productive for themselves and then be able to start rebuilding themselves, rehabilitating themselves in small ways. Because for myself, I do not believe in, in big things. I'd rather talk about small things that, you know, because through, through this, through this uh, the way of giving, and especially if our people throughout Australia can be able to donate the, the little that they have, it can also contribute in, in, you know, giving that thought that, oh, not, I mean, Australia is a good country. You know, these are the small things that we can be able to do as brothers and sisters after all in, in this global community. So I would really appreciate like, you know, in small ways, if donations can come, especially for small machines, portable machines that can help people to make their own bricks and then they start building their houses because these are the big recommendations that we have for people to be relocated, for people to be given water supplies and all other big, big projects. But I believe that if we, through this partnership, through especially listening to what I am saying, if we can start off helping these people who are so unfortunate, my people, especially with the little that we have, and then we train them that small need the little support the donations and then they be able to do whatever they can they can also teach themselves to rehabilitate themselves instead of waiting for the government to do everything for us because i believe in rehabilitating myself and then allowing growth and healing to take place from the very you no know, turn something that looks bad now into something positive and then it creates that impact in a wider community yeah yeah for sure um and and how do you feel about the fact that the political conversation both locally and internationally at the moment seems to be about whether or not to allow mining to start up again or whether or not to reopen the panguna mine rather than about the lived experience of people in your community who are still suffering from the legacy issues that are nowhere near resolved? For myself, I should say that the agenda of reopening and then there's political talks on the push for reopening, I can honestly say that being a woman and being someone who have lived with the community, I've seen people struggle. There is nothing that will bring change. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to talk about redevelopment, we're talking about worsening the issue. We're talking about we, we're talking about opening up those cars that were created mm -hmm. during the civil unrest. We're talking about creating new issues on top of the legacy issues that we have. We're talking about creating new matters, new issues that we call for reconciliation, whilst we still sit down and we pretend as if there were no other issues that calls for international reconciliation. Because for myself, I can honestly say that issue of Panguna calls for an international reconciliation, that we need to come face to face, talk with each other, look for ways 
to rehabilitate and let's reconcile and rule it out. Even if it has never happened in the world, it has to happen. You know, being humans, because this is what I've always been talking about while it's appealing to the do the undo the titles and let's look at each other as humans and let's treat each other as you know that we are just one community in this global community because if we are to pretend and say that we don't know each other where are we going to go this is a small world <laughs> so for myself i am not comfortable with the agenda I am not comfortable at at all with the agenda of redevelopment without addressing the legacy issues. Yep, absolutely. And um, you did an interview in 2018 with Christina Hill from Jubilee Australia and it, um, in a larger report about alternatives to mining. Um, what do you think about some of those alternatives in terms of um, subsidising traditional practices and, and enabling independence through like a variety of different practices in farming instead of mining? Um, okay, for myself, um, with regards to the alternatives to the, I mean, especially when it comes to economic, economic generation or revenue creation, avenue for Bougainville, this is, I mean, this is the way I put things to make the alternatives look very clear. First of all, I see, you know, Bougainville should go into production, whether it be farming, fishing, all these other things, and then be able to generate the income and be, you know, for the government to facilitate the creation of markets. And then for the government to help with creation of transport so that people can be able to transport their produces locally and domestically throughout the country and also and then having said that like in my community as an alternative since i am a very big advocate for against the agenda of the redevelopment of panguna i've been encouraging communities to build up their village treasuries like you know they pay tax into the community treasury so they're building that up and in my constituency so far the highest has has gone with the production and sales and then people being able to create their own treasuries in the communities i think the highest so far that what we are looking at as i speak is thirty-four thousand kina just in this year so this is how fast you know people can be able and then we can be able to measure our our, our the economic value of bougainville through what the communities are doing because their revenue when they're generating it internally they are able to build and then employ themselves at the at the micro level mm. and the other other alternative that i i am looking forward and i wish to see and this is something which our revolutionary leaders have always been talking about is we just want a safe economic corridor where we can sell our cocoa, where we can sell our downstream cocoa to Australia, to Japan, where there are chocolate factories. Because, I mean, these are the things that can, that does not require a CV, curriculum vitae for you to apply because you have the land. Mm. 
And for myself, I believe that the alternative to to generating revenue for Bougainville lies with stealing of the land mm. and then being productive using your own land because here in Bougainville, we still have the upper hand. We own the land. The government does not own the land. Mm. So let's put that land to work. Let's make it work so that it can help our families, relieve them, and then be able to contribute to the economic generation of this new nation in the Pacific. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We've got another recording um, with Karen from the Human Rights Law Center as well. Um, and I'll just find the next video. I'll just share my screen again. Human Rights Law Center to look into what was going on in Bougainville and produce this amazing yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so we, we got um, contacted um, a little over a year ago, about 18 months ago, by some academics in um, Queensland who had been working with the Bougainville uh, Catholic Diocese, who, after Rio Tinto divested from um, the Panguna mine back in 2016, had been working on a project with local communities to try and document the impacts of the mine um, and and in order to raise concerns with Rio Tinto. And we decided after after we spoke to them that we really needed to go out there um, and look at these issues for ourselves. Um, and to be honest, you know, when I when I got out there, so first went out there in September 2019, uh, things were a lot more serious than I had even expected, even on the basis of what, you know, knowing that this was a kind of a major environmental disaster in our region and had been going on for a long time. But also um, the extent to which um, the issues were were kind of an ongoing risk for communities rather than simply legacy issues that they've been living with for 30 years was one of the, the kind of key um, things that we immediately noticed when we started looking at this, you know, that, that, that the mine waste was continuing to move into new areas, affecting communities that had never been impacted previously, um, that, you know, further up closer to the mine, that there were issues with levees um, built at the time of the mine being undermined and the river potentially um, having the, the possibility of, um, of bursting through those levees um, and flooding nearby villages. These are the kinds of risks that people are living with. And because the mine, you know, the mine infrastructure has been, been deteriorating um, now over a long period of time because, um, you know, since the mine was um, abandoned by Rio Tinto in the context of the uprising in 1989. Um, th there's a lot of these sort of, you know, unredressed issues that are increasingly dangerous for communities out there. Yeah, the, the ongoing nature of things is what really struck me about the report as well. I've done a little bit of research in sort of the situation in Roganville since the Civil War, but I had no idea that places were continuing to flood, that land was continuing to be lost until reading your report. So it's really, really important revealing work there for sure. Um, in, in the report, you said the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights recognise that a delayed response may affect remediability. Um, so, yeah, that's certainly the case in with the Panguna mine because it's been so delayed. Is it possible to rehabilitate this landscape after such neglect over time and the and the cumulative impacts? Well, I think that I mean one of the reasons why communities there are, cause, are calling in the first instance for a, 
an, an urgent kind of assessment, environmental and human rights assessment um, by qualified experts um, is to identify which are the key issues that pose a most severe kind of health and safety risks. You know, we know, for example, that the, the rivers are heavily contaminated with copper and other heavy metals, but the extent of that contamination and, and the sort of risks that it poses for communities are unknown because that's never been kind of um, looked into. And likewise, in relation to how the, 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 the billion tonnes of mine waste tailings that have been left in the Jabba Kawarong River Valley, how those are dealt with and whether it's possible to, um, to, to kind of clean them up fully um, or, or to address some of the, you know, the very widespread environmental damage. These are all questions that need to be looked at urgently by, um, by experts um, and, and recommendations developed as to how, um, how they should be dealt with. I think there, are, I mean, what we can say is that there's certainly some um, issues that could be immediately dealt with that would help um, to um, reduce the really severe impacts on communities, such as things like the development of infrastructure to get safe water, um, which is a major, major concern for many of the communities living all downstream of the mine. Um, but, but, you know, the, whether the, the damage can be fully cleaned up, I think, is, is, is a little bit unknown at this point. Certainly, we think it's um, Rio Tinto's obligation um, to do everything that it can to ensure um, that the, the landscape is properly remediated. Yeah, for sure. Um, and your report that was released in April, um, yeah, you took that to the Australian government and they've actually recently this month agreed to mediate talks between Rio Tinto and the Bougainville um, traditional landowners that, that are represented in the report. Um, how do you think these negotiations will go? Well, I mean, first, the first thing is to say is that, you know, we, we brought the complaint to the Australian government on behalf of 156 um, members of four different villages downstream of the mine. Um, and they wanted us to do that partly because they've been attempting to raise these issues with Rio Tinto for a long time and have got nowhere. Um, and there is this complaint function um, within the Australian Department of Treasury, which is supposed to oversee overseas responsible business conduct by Australian companies overseas. Um, that mechanism is, is largely a dispute resolution mechanism. It's not like a court or, you know, they can't make kind of binding findings on companies. But um, in light of, um, you know, the exposure that Rio Tinto has, has received um, in Australia and elsewhere in relation to its recent impacts at, at Jukan Gorge, I think they will be taking that process very seriously. And the, 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 the most sort of, I guess, um, positive indication that we've had to date is that as soon as that complaint was brought, um, Rio Tinto agreed that it would um, sit down with communities to discuss these issues again. Now that's a major shift in the company's position um, of the last 30 years, which has always been that they bore no responsibility um, for any, any ongoing environmental and human rights impacts um, because they had been forcibly ejected from the island and that they believed that they were in full compliance with the standards of the day. Um, so, you know, I think it's unlikely that they would have opened the door to those discussions if they had no intention of doing anything to, um, and, uh, you know, I think we have to, we, we welcome, you know, the opportunity to discuss things with them, but we will, you know, have to be very clear that those discussions can't be just talk and that they need to be followed with meaningful action. Yeah. 
Well, they, they were certainly aware of it in 2013 and 14 when they were actually in discussions with the autonomous Bougainville government and the Papua New Guinea government um, about potentially reopening the mine. Um, and the clear response from local landowners at that time seemed to be not until these legacy issues have been addressed. Um, and then, of course, uh, they abruptly divested from, from the mine and gave the shareholding to to the governments in question. Um, so, I mean, considering that sort of behaviour in the past, yeah, do you think the context has changed enough now that they're going to have to be accountable? They've just seemed, in that instance, and also after the report in 1989, that showed that they were pretty much conscious of their negligence during and after the mines operation. Um, but you're confident that now there's so much more accountability um that maybe things have changed i do i do think that we're we're dealing with a very different context at the moment where you know rio tinto is under significant um, scrutiny from its shareholders um, from members of the public from um, you know members of parliament in australia um, in relation to the way it deals with communities on the ground and the impacts of its operations because of their actions at jukan gorge so i I do think, you know, they've said, um, in, you know, following following that um, that disaster and the and the and the Senate inquiry into that, they've said that they are very committed to learning lessons um, from what happened at Jukan Gorge um, and to looking at the discrepancy or any discrepancies between um, what they say they do and you know and and how communities experience that on the ground. So I think we just have to take them at their word um, for the time being and um, and to say, well, you know, this is your chance to demonstrate it. And I'm hopeful that with new leadership also coming into the company um, in the early new year with the departure of J.S. Jack and, and some other senior executives, um, uh, you know, that we're hopeful that the new leadership will see um, the real importance of if they want to re-establish Rio Tinto's reputation globally um, of dealing with these kind of legacy issues. Yeah, and, and you've previously stated to The Guardian that um, the Human Rights Law Centre wouldn't real, rule out further legal action if an agreement couldn't be reached. What could this look like potentially? Well, I think it's important that we focus at the moment on what can be achieved through this process, uh, rather than speculating on, on you know, what form legal action could take. But certainly there are very serious breaches of people's rights um, that are occurring, both their rights under the Papua New Guinea constitution um, and potentially um, also under Australian or UK law um, as the company is um, uh, headquartered duly in Australia and the UK. Um, and, and we'll have to look at, you know, look at those issues more closely if these um, discussions don't lead to uh, the sort of action that communities are calling for. But it's important to note, I think, that, um, that legal action um, of, the, of this kind, um, really the kind of the main outcome of, of a legal case um, is usually compensation, even if it's successful. It can't force a kind of a, a clean up and proper kind of redress for communities of the kind that communities are really calling for and need in Bougainville. Um, and so I'm really hopeful that um, through the, you know, these kind of discussions uh, that a fruitful, um, you know, outcome can be, can be realised that actually deals with the reality of what people are facing on the ground and addressing 
those urgent risks because you know money money to individuals is not going to solve these huge problems um, communities need you know that 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 might need to be part of the discussion but communities need a lot more than that yeah um, at the end of your report you've um detailed priority needs identified by the community such as water and um, reinforcements of levees and reconstruction of br uh, bridges um, water monitoring monitoring and um you know actual food aid and all these practical things um i i suppose you know you've detailed in the report that some of the responsibility is is rio's and png government autonomous bougainville government but you've also noted that without rio tinto's backing um, or australia's backing um, the autonomous bougainville government and the png government alone just don't have the resources to clean up the site um, because it would cost billions so is that sort of the key importance of this accountability process you're pursuing? Because without something like this, they they can't do it without Rio taking accountability in terms of practically achieving justice for people. Yeah, exactly. I mean that you know, as you know, the autonomous Bougainville government um, has has very limited resources, and they're also attempting to now move in the direction of establishing themselves as the world's newest nation um, um, and, and, and those kind of discussions with PNG, which will mean that they um, have even more um, revenue that they need to find um, just to kind of run the basic services and, um, and provide that kind of level of um, government that for their people. So, um, you know, Rio Tinto is what one of the world's richest companies that the, the um, you know the, the sort of money that would be needed to do the kind of um, environmental and human rights impact assessment that people are calling for would really be small change for a company like like Rio Tinto. I think the more significant question is how much it will cost to actually undertake the sort of remediation work that's necessary to really properly um, ensure that the site is safe and um, that the environment is is restored as much as as much as is possible. Um, and, and we won't really know that until, you know, until an ass a proper assessment is done as to how much that would cost. But I would expect that would be a very significant amount. And I think, um, you know, there's there's no chance that the, the Bougainville government or even the PNG government um, would be able to, to, to kind of fund um, that sort of work on their own. So Rio Tinto's involvement really is needed. It's, it's also worth noting that, you know, um, Bougainville Copper Limited that, um, you know, was formerly Rio Tinto's subsidiary that ran the mine is now also essentially a shell company which has almost no resources. So, um, you know, I think one of the reasons that they have welcomed um, the potential for renewed discussions is because um, they also um, have, have very limited resources to be able to do anything about this um, without Rio Tinto's backing. And um, the Australian Bougainville government now owns a 36.4 share in, in BCL. And, and there's been talk about reopening Panguna as a way of economic self-sufficiency if, if Bougainville becomes independent. How do you feel about this, given how people are living because these legacy issues haven't even been addressed yet, like the, the future of mining in, in Bougainville? Well, I'm sure that Fianilla will comment a lot more on that, but, you know, I guess the, we, you know, our position as the Human Rights Law Centre is it's not, it's not for us to decide um, uh, whether the mine should be reopened or not. That's very much a question that is for the Bougainville people. Um, but where we note that there was huge unity among people was that 
everyone in Bougainville, irrespective of whether they feel the mine should be reopened or not, feels that Rio Tinto should be accountable for the, the massive legacy of environmental and social destruction that they've left behind. So, um, you know, that is why we have working with communities, a very carefully crafted calls that have a unifying message um, and that 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 had really wide cross-section of buy-in from communities um, in terms of Rio Tinto's responsibility. What happens from there, you know, is something that that Theonilla and others um, who are, you know, representatives for their their people will need to um, need to work on. But obviously um, you know, one key thing, irrespective of what happens, is if there are Australian companies that are involved um, in further, you know, mining exploration in Bougainville, that um, the Bougainville government needs to really make sure that, um, that, that much better frameworks are put in place um, to ensure that this kind of damage can't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. And there are um, Australian stock exchange companies circling and, and having these um, discussions about mining and build, um, mining in Bougainville at the moment. Um, at least four are registered in Perth alone. We've got RTG, Kalia Limited, um, Twiggy Forests companies sniffing around. Um, so what do you think ordinary Australians can do about Australian linked companies um, overseas? Is there any way that we can hold them to account ahead of time? I think there's quite a few different things that can be done. I mean, broadly, we um, we believe that there should be a, a much better regulatory framework put in place for oversight um, of, of, of companies' activities overseas and companies should be required to undertake um, human rights due diligence before they um, you know, get involved in major projects overseas in the same way that they have to submit an environmental impact assessment here in Australia. Um, uh, for their activities, um, but you know, also I think that there's there's a lot that can be done in relation to um, even under the current framework, ensuring that companies are held to account better. You know, one of the key things that we've seen over the past couple of years is a real rise in Australia of um, shareholder activism, for example, with um, people taking action through their super funds and um, through shareholder um, resolutions at, at company meetings to ensure that companies can be held to account. So that's one way, for example, for people to get, you know, get involved in a um, in, in a more significant way here in Australia. Um, you know, and the other uh, the other sorts of things are, are, are to be supporting uh, law reform efforts and really sending strong strong messages to the Australian government that it matters what we do overseas. You know, that, um, I think in Australia sometimes, um, you know, we have, uh, despite our kind of growing global footprint in terms of Australian mining companies in particular operating overseas, um, there's very little responsibility taken. It can be a bit sort of out of sight, out of mind, especially when they're operating in far-flung places um, out of public view. So um, I think that we need a lot better kind of reporting back on, on what companies are doing. I think we need to improve that kind of transparency, but I ultimately at the end of the day, we need to ensure that there's proper regulation that provides pathways to justice for people when things go wrong and for communities to be able to raise complaints like this. So um, another thing that we've called for is, um, is for a strengthening of this process through the Australian government, this um, Australian OECD national contact point, um, so that it has some more some real teeth to be able to actually investigate um, companies that are accused of, of serious human rights and environmental um, destruction overseas um, and actually ensure that they are held to account here. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, Rio Tinto divested, when they divested from Panguna, um, it was around the same time as it dumped other controversial projects in, in places like Alaska and Indonesia. Um, and there were already regulatory, regulatory frameworks like the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, like the OC, uh, OECD guidelines that, that are relevant with this, with this case. Given the track record of companies like Rio Tinto, of mining companies, massive mining companies around the world, not just in Bougainville and in Australia too, we're talking about Australia's regulatory system. How useful are these standards and obligations really? Well, I think that they're an important first step, but the, the you know the the point that we would make about all of those is that they're they're ultimately at the end of the day they're guidelines, they're not guiding laws. And what we need are real kind of laws with teeth to to ensure that companies are held to account when things um, when things go wrong or where they take action that really harms people and the planet. Um, and you know, I think it's the the UN guiding principles have been really important in starting um, a, a long kind of a global discussion about the responsibility that companies have for human rights um, abuses as well um, and not just governments because traditionally it's just been the role of the governments but at the end of the day um, Australia needs to um, implement those its obligations under the UN guiding principles by enacting um, a, a framework a policy framework and laws here that actually give effect to the principles in 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 that um, in that treaty, so the principle that you know companies have have an obligation to provide redress when their operations cause or contribute to um, serious human rights abuses, for example, you know that that needs to be given effect in law um, to make it a, a meaningful reality for people. Yeah, for sure. And Australia's role again, they were the colonial power that originally approved the mine and established the weak environmental framework um, that was associated with the initial approval. Um, yeah, I don't think most Australians are, are aware of that or even know what's what's going on, which is deeply disturbing. Australian government is deeply implicated in this. So yeah, what is their true responsibility, um, do you think? And what can we do that about it specifically to hold the government to account? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Australia bears very significant responsibility in this specific case because, you know, without um, without Australia, um, the exploration for this mine would never have proceeded in the first place. Um, Australia also was, you know, the party that excluded um, the Bougainville local Bougainvillians and landowners um, from the process of agreeing um, the framework for the mine so that you know ultimately that the framework that was agreed was something between um, the Australian government and the company which you know is 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 part of the reason um, along with the environmental damage why there was so much um, so much kind of controversy and and so much local anger about the mine because people were left to live with the costs but not having received the benefits um, of of what um, of what that agreement was. Um, I, I think that Australia has you know it, it, what communities have called for is for an independent um, fund to be established by Rio Tinto and others, including the Australian government and the others and the PNG government. Um, to help address the problems that they're now facing. And we, you know, we would say that Australia does have um, a very significant responsibility to help 
address these problems. But again, um, I think that the first step is to, to, to bring Rio Tinto to the table as the primary, um, you know, company and primary entity that, that, that caused um, the environmental problems and then just see um, also whether um, the Australian government and PNG government um, would be, um, would contribute to such a fund. Um, but in any event, Australia has very, um, a very strong role in relation to um, Bougainville and Bougainville, um, Bougainville's independence as a, as a nation. Um, and I think that there's, there's a whole range of things that can be done um, in terms of both through the overseas aid program and, um, and also diplomatically to try and ensure that these problems um, are addressed. And we'll certainly be attempting to, um, to, to contact the Australian government and have discussions with them about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, just a few more questions, last couple. Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, I appreciate it. First of all, um, I know this is being pursued through through the report and, and everything like that. And, I, and I'm sure there are community organisations that people listening to contribute um, can contribute to, which I will be asking Thea But how can listeners today um, support you at the Human Rights Law Centre in this in this case, and um, how might they be able to support um, Bougainvilleans more directly? Yeah, I think um, I mean Thea Nilla will be able to comment on much more on the how how people can support Bougainvilleans more directly. Um, in terms of this particular complaint, I think you know we're we're going to be engaging in discussions with Rio Tinto um, over the next period, um, over the next few months. If those discussions, you know, don't lead anywhere, um, or Rio Tinto, it appears that Rio Tinto is not um, undertaking those discussions in good faith. Um, I'm sure that we will be, you know, stepping up the public campaign in relation to this issue on behalf of communities. And at that point, I think it will be, you know, it will be really critical that as many people stand up as possible and 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 um, and make a noise about this, particularly. You know, at, at Rio Tinto's AGM next year, um, and at other 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 points potentially. But you know, at the moment we're kind of involved in this process, and we intend to um, to go into those discussions in good faith and see what can be achieved through them. Thank you very much for your time, Karen. Um, I really appreciate it. hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Beyond Mining podcast series, Blockade iMark and much much more, please visit blockadeimark.com. Thanks for listening.